Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, 35 covering sports in the H. And hey, we skipped last Thursday for a special hour on the Rockets trade deadline with our Rockets expert, Frank from Rockets Chop Shop. But Sean, you and I have got tons to get into for this one. We'll head on the Super Bowl, the Andre Johnson Hall of Fame snub, we're going to call it, and a major Astros signing in a bit. But first, Sean, I didn't know if I'd ever be excited over the Texans on Super Bowl Sunday, but they made serious news, didn't they? They did. They got themselves an offensive coordinator uh, in Bobby Slowick from the San Francisco 49ers, and they've got themselves a quarterback coach, uh, Gerard Johnson, who people around here should be very, very familiar with, obviously, uh, one-time former Texas A&M Aggie quarterback, but um, good friends with uh, somebody at my radio station, John Lopez. Uh, those guys have had a very, very close relationship for many, many years. Um, Gerard's coached at multiple levels as he's come up in the uh, professional ranks, and he's not one of those guys that uh, has a lot of pelts on his wall, Robert, in terms of what he's done for this, that, or the other NFL organization, but he has worked. Uh, with some very talented quarterbacks over the years, and most importantly, um, the top two quarterbacks in this upcoming draft, and Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, which we can talk a little bit more about later on. But uh, not only do they have Slowick, not only do they have Johnson, but they've also got a couple of other coaches as they continue to round out this uh, coaching staff of theirs. And Steven Adagoki, uh, he's going to be the safeties coach for the Houston Texans. He comes over with D'Amico. Um, from the uh, San Francisco 49ers as well. He spent one year just uh, in the NFL, has that under his belt. He was a quality control coach for San Francisco this past year. And uh, Nick Cray, who comes over as chief of staff, he was the same uh, in the same role with the San Francisco 49ers. But he's been in the NFL for quite a bit, uh, six years with the 49ers. Uh, I believe spent the first five years there as an administrative assistant type to uh, the head coach under uh, Kyle Shanahan. So that's kind of an interesting move, I think, a necessary one. Anybody that can help you with the administrative side of things outside of uh, another front office individual or a public relations person, it's best. And so they obviously have a relationship uh, Nick Cray and D'Amico Ryans do. But I'm really, I'm really excited about Gerard Johnson, really excited about Bobby Slowick. Uh, and the reason why is for Slowick, he's essentially bringing Kyle Shanahan's playbook over. And when you look at what the San Francisco 49ers have done under Shanahan offensively, particularly this year, obviously they had a, you know, the stud defense led by D'Amico as their coordinator. But anytime that you don't really hiccup between Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Purdy, I can't really say anything for Trey Lance because the sample size has been so small. And when he was out on the field, it wasn't great. But uh, that speaks more to him than maybe just the system itself. But, I mean, the system obviously works. I love it. I think we should all be excited about um, how this Texans coaching staff is is being put together, being built. There's obviously some other names, too. People have heard, and I think even maybe John McClain reported it prematurely in terms of Clint Kubiak, who um, the Texans are trying to get over. Uh, to NRG from, uh, I believe it's Denver. Yeah, yeah, he was in Denver last year. And it seems like, you know, with the relationship that Gary's got and those two guys, Houston's home for them, uh, both Clint and Clay, the, his other son, and, and Clint's brother and a and former strike Jesuit coach a couple of years ago. So those guys you would think would want to come back to Houston if they were offered the job. It's just a matter of you know, what, what the situation is. But, I mean, we can throw everything else from the last couple of days away, Sean, and you just get down to it's the, the whole emphasis is going to be, is Bobby Slowick going to be better than Pep Hamilton? And is he going to bring that magic Shanahan dust with him? And that's what you're hoping for if you're a Texans fan. They all think, they go, oh, they're sprinkling the, you know, here it comes down, the, the Shanahan dust. And look, uh, Slowick, he doesn't have this resume that says, hey, you know, look at this offense that he's created. I mean, he's he's been a student, you know, of the, the, the Shanahan offense, so to speak, the West Coast system. OK, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he's been in the NFL now for 11 years. 
Um, I like how he's worked himself up from, you know, the lowest of ranks. He began as a defensive quality control coach. I believe that was like back in 2011, 2013, uh, with then the Washington Redskins. Um, and since going to San Francisco, I mean, we all, you can look up his resume. I mean, it's, it's just been a slow, steady progression. I say slow, he's 35 and he's an offensive coordinator for an NFL team, but it's been a steady progression. I just, I like the idea of having the Shanahan playbook here and just the examples that I gave you from the transition going from Garoppolo to Purdy. It was obviously smooth and a lot better in some respects, um, but it, it's got to feel pretty good. You have to be behind this because he is a young, bright, ascending young coach in the NFL, and that's exactly what a hire like D'Amico Ryans does for an organization so desperately in need of young, talented, innovative minds. Yeah, and I think it's a, a big thumbs up from everybody that's a Texans fan on that particular move. But one coaching hire that maybe people aren't on board with, we're going to get to in a second. Quick reminder, though, the best way to support us is subscribe and comment on YouTube. You can listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. But Sean, Late last week, they also hired new DC, Matt Burke. Last year, he was the defensive line coach for the Cardinals. So he worked with J.J. Watt uh, over there. The year before, he was on the Jet staff with D'Amico's old boss, Robert Saleh. Sean, I'm guessing Watt and Saleh recommendations might have helped Burke, but the Texans fans noticed he was the Dolphins' DC in 17 and 18, and it didn't look good. His defenses ranked no higher than 27th and points allowed both years. And that team had pro bowlers Rashad Jones, Xavier Howard, Nagamagan Sue, and Cameron Wake. So fans just not exactly blown away by that guy. Yeah, but that was a little while ago, right? I mean, that was six, seven years ago. Um, he's only 46 years of age. So that means he was, what, 38, 39, you know, almost 40 years old when he held that position. And, you know, even since his time in uh, Miami as a defensive coordinator, he's gone on and spent some time underneath Doug Peterson, when he was the Eagles head coach, um, he'd spent time, as you mentioned, with Robert Sala, um, with the New York Jets, and obviously has had great success in Arizona. But if you really look at his positional coaching, he's had tremendous success. I mean, the guy's obviously a really good coach, and he's worked for some really um, successful organizations during his time as he's kind of ascended back to the level of a defensive coordinator now with this new role with the Houston Texans. And so, like, you know, look, I mean, he's a guy that's been in the NFL for 20 years. You learn as you go, and he's got a lot of knowledge that I think he can draw upon over the course of the two decades he spent in the NFL. And you live and you learn, right? I mean, there were some things that worked that didn't work during his time in Miami. And I can't wait till um, he speaks to the media because I, I think these are all fair questions, and I'd be interested more in knowing you know, kind of me building his case for him, what exactly he was able to take from his experience as defensive coordinator with the Miami Dolphins, what he has learned uh, in terms of what to do, what not to do, how to run a defense. And he's got a really good, he's got a really good guy in his hip pocket and D'Amico Ryans, who had one of the best defenses over the course of the last couple of years in San Francisco. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think fans just said, well, we're going to make excuses for D'Amico because we love him already so much that we're like, oh, well, he's going to be running the defense, so it doesn't really matter and all that. And we'll see how that lasts after the first few games, if they struggle or something bad happens. And it's all of a sudden, it's not D'Amico's fault. It's going to be Matt Burke's fault. You know, that's the way it's going to come down. We don't know the dynamic. You know, we're going to learn a little bit more as we kind of go along. But, you know, we do have this, you know, trust in D'Amico sort of philosophy, this attitude about us right now. You know, I mean, two years at a defensive coordinator is not 20 years of NFL experience. And D'Amico has been an NFL coach or been employed, um, you know, as a member of the coaching staff for what, six years entering his seventh year and his first as a head coach with the Texans. So, I mean, I put a lot into the knowledge and experience gained after being in the league for X amount of years, like, a guy like Matt Burke and or Bobby Slowick, that they've got, um, you know, real assets, resources at their disposal to help them. Gary Kubiak seems like he's going to be one for D'Amico Ryans, Robert. And so I, I think whoever the architect is for the Houston Texans defense, you know, Matt Burke, I'm sure, can complement a little bit of what D'Amico likes to do and vice versa. And so whoever's actually calling the defense on game days, 
I'm sure that'll be determined. D'Amico didn't seem married to either one of those, though granted, he probably had an idea who he would have liked to have been the defensive coordinator at the time of the press conference. You know, Matt Burke was certainly on his radar. I would have to venture a guess. Um, so he knew a little bit about him, but it's going to be a process, I think. I mean, you still have a long ways to go before they need to worry about making those decisions. Well, the decisions of who the coaches are have been made. So we're going to find out who these guys are and how well they can coach. And there's no question, Burke, boy, very intelligent, very intelligent guy, fascinating guy. He graduated from Dartmouth, nearly went to med school, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, has gone on a safari in Botswana, has done charity work in Uganda. I mean, if it, if we get outside of the United States, man, this guy can take care of us. You know what I Go mean? Go ahead. I, did you mention he coached at Harvard as well? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and you said Dartmouth. The Dartmouth angle, um, I did not know he went to Dartmouth. He's 46. How old is Brad Ausmus? I wonder if they went uh, to Dartmouth together. Well, the other thing about that is I, I, I say I'm real confident in how intelligent he is, but but uh, we know Bill O'Brien went to Brown. That's another Ivy League school, great school, and uh, not so intelligent from Bill O'Brien most of the time. <laughs> well, you know, intelligence, I mean, relative to what? To being a general manager and head coach and, you know, just overall busybody and running an organization? Yeah, maybe not so much. But in terms of intelligence, on, you know, being a really good offensive coordinator. I do have to give Bill O'Brien that, but. I, I don't have to give him that. Alabama fans don't have to give him that. We'll see what the Patriots fans think coming soon. And look, the Texans, we know, we saw, it wasn't the greatest looking offense. It wasn't this brilliant, genius, right. innovative offense when Bill O'Brien was here. And lo and behold, as soon as he took his hands off the reins, the best offensive coordinator in the last decade for the Texans was our offensive coordinator and made it look a lot better with Deshaun Watson, Tim Kelly, I'm talking about. And, you know, that's a guy that maybe if they held on, he, he might still be the offensive coordinator because, you know, he, he did a hell of a job with the Texans in that, you know, just short span that he was uh, with Deshaun. And then I, I think it was like he was still offensive coordinator under David Culley, but it was such a catastrophe of quarterback, rookie quarterback and offensive line. He had no shot there. Anything that happened with David Culley, and Lovey Smith in-house doesn't count. I strike that from the record books, you know, and definitely from my memory. Um, but, man, I'm going to trust you on this when you say Bill O'Brien, not Bill O'Brien, but Tim Kelly's the best offensive coordinator the Texans had in the last decade. That just tells me that this last decade in Houston, Texas, from a football standpoint, has sucked. And I think they can do a lot better and will do a lot better with a franchise quarterback, with some real talent around said franchise quarterback and a young, you know, student of the Shanahan tree, the West Coast offense and Bobby Sloak running things. Yeah, and we're going to get to the Super Bowl in a second because I have some thoughts from a Texans angle on the Super Bowl. But Sean. They screwed Andre Johnson out of the Hall of Fame again. Yeah. You, read, you ready for my speech to the Hall of Fame committee? I, I'm, I've prepared it. I'm ready to go to the committee right now. You ready? Is it going to be better than what Andre Johnson said he would tell the Hall of Fame committee if he had an opportunity to talk with him? Because he made a pretty strong case himself. Yeah, I, I would think I would be a little bit more passionate, a little bit more loud than Andre Johnson. But look at it, this, man. He's a four-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Bowl. We know that. But 11th all-time in catches and receiving yards, 11 in both categories, despite a bunch of crappy quarterbacks and a mediocre Matt Schaub the whole time he was in Houston. And listen to this. His three 1,500-yard seasons only trail the wide receiver goat, Jerry Rice, with four. His three seasons with a combined 100 receptions and 1,500 yards are more than anybody, anybody currently and can't nobody in Kent right now is more a hundred yard seasons. He has an NFL record 21 straight games with at least 10 catches and a hundred yards. I mean, I'm going to keep going. He did it all, even though the best wide receiver he had was a prime in his prime. Kevin Walter, Kevin Walter was the best wide receiver. His career started in the second year of an expansion team. So he had that working against him. He never played with another Hall of Famer on offense unless DeAndre Hopkins gets in the Hall of Fame, but Dre was in his last two years when he played with Hopkins. And Andre's prime, he was in a, and this is important, 
He was in a Kubiak offense, not designed at all to get wide receivers touchdowns when they got inside the 10. They pretty much never threw a fade or jump ball to Andre, which is crazy considering how huge and athletic he was. And Sean, he did it all while never complaining or whining or boasting, which is the huge exception among NFL wide receivers. Case closed. Can I uh, put the cherry on top for you? There's 29 receivers currently in the Hall of Fame. And Reggie Wayne, Torrey Holt, both of them were up for induction along with Andre Johnson uh, going into the uh, uh, 2023 class. Neither one of those three are going to go into the Hall of Fame this year. Andre Johnson has more receptions than 24 of the 29 current receivers in the Hall of Fame. He's gained more yards than 23 of them, scored more touchdowns than 10 of them, played in more games than 18 of those already enshrined. He's 11th all-time in receiving yards amongst Hall of Fame players. The guy's going to go in. He deserves to be in. Anytime you finish amongst the already enshrined, among the very, very best, the elite of the elite, you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. What what bothers me about this and so many people at this stage is we have these conversations every single year, but it hits close to home now. In fact, it hits us right smack dab in the middle of the house because it is one of our own. It is former Houston Texan Andre Johnson. The political side of these Hall of Fames, whether it be baseball or football, basketball is kind of like mm, whatever i feel like everybody gets into the basketball hall of fame because they take into account your middle school career you know pretty much um andre johnson deserves to be in and he will get in and i have to believe that it'll be within the next three years and i say that because i fully anticipated robert andre to i thought there was a strong likelihood that he would get snubbed this year but because reggie wayne and tory holt would go in and I thought next year he would be the only eligible and deserving receiver to go in next season. And because neither one of those three got in this year, I think maybe we might see that case next year where Wayne gets in and or Holt gets in and Johnson might have to wait for that following year. But then I haven't even looked that far ahead. I don't know who's due up for the 2025 class. Maybe it's the trash cans he used during his career, video <laughs> monitors. I don't know, but let's talk. Let, hey, let's hear, forget us for a second. A few years ago, I talked to former Texan quarterback, Sage Rosenfels, who was Dre's teammate, his rookie season. And Sean, this is what Sage told me when I asked him about Andre Johnson a few years ago. Let me ask you about Andre Johnson. What comes to mind when I say his name? Andre was just phenomenal. I had never played with the physical a uh, receiver like him before, you know, whatever he was, 6'4", and 230, 35 pounds. Uh, he was just a, a physical freak. Uh, but the way he was soft-spoken, didn't say a lot, uh, and just went to work every single day. You know, he had his own Friday workouts in the summertime. Uh, he, uh, I think someone, you know, uh, labeled as like the, the, the hurricane workout or the canes workout or something like that, which, you know, some players showed up for that was extremely challenging. Uh, you know, Andre was not outworked, but he was one of those rare players that was extremely talented, uh, and refused to be outworked by anybody. So, uh, one of my all time teammates, the best wide receiver, uh, I ever played with, uh, in my time in college or the NFL. And, and in my opinion, should be a, a hall of fame receiver. If you can find that clip uh, and other clips about Andre Johnson up on our uh, YouTube page, but there you go, Sean. I mean, that's good stuff. That was great. I, I keep looking for, you know, former teammates of his and, you know, guys that even played against him coaches. We've heard from everybody, Robert, they all say the same thing. And it, it, it gets kind of nauseating because, what matters most, I think, for Andre, at least this is what he told the media, the last couple of availabilities that we've had with him over the last you know, handful of months since he was announced and trimmed the votes from you know, 28 possible candidates to 15 to this last one, is that he didn't pay attention to this sort of thing and, until it kind of rolls around you know, and people start talking about it. But the number one thing that's important to him is He's earned the respect of his peers, the guys that he's played with, the guys that he played against, the, the, the people that coached him, the people that coached against him 
they all say the same thing that you just heard from Sage Rosenfels, that you've already heard at nauseum from Gary Kubiak, um, you know, from Matt Schaub, you name it, Kevin Walter. I got a great interview with him a couple of weeks ago uh, at a deal uh, at NRG, and he was just glowing about, you know, Andre Johnson. He couldn't shut up about him. And it's the same thing. Again, he deserves to be in, and he will get in. But I, I tell you this, I don't think Andre Johnson would use the term snub for himself. It's he knows what he did. He can't undo it. He can't make it better. If he gets in, when he gets in, it's going to be a great day. Can't wait to gripe again next year when he gets snubbed again. I'm going to call it snubbed. <laughs> oh, no. uh, let, let's move to the Super Bowl. And, Sean, I, I turned to one of my relatives as, as, as I was watching the game on Sunday and said, man, the Texans have a long way to go. I mean, seeing the level of talent on both sides can be jarring when you watch 17 Texans games. <laughs> yeah, uh, they do have a long way to go, obviously. I mean, we, you could count on maybe one hand, um, may, or maybe two hands, maybe two hands. If you talk about like uh, offense, defense, and special teams, uh, of the amount of guys that, you know, you would retain that would actually – start on other really good teams, really good rosters, or if you want to break it down this way, guys that you know just don't have to compete for a job this season. It, they're locks. <laughs> you know, there's just a whole bunch of other dudes out there. And I, I we, we know that to be true. However, there's also some young guys. And there's also some, you know, older veteran guys that I feel like the Texans this season in a – kind of a wonky defense, I will say, in a um, really a horrible offensive scheme, you saw a little bit from. And so with more competent, more innovative coaching, direction, scheme, however you want to couch it, I would anticipate some of those players that you just couched as, ah, that's just a jag, just another guy, as maybe being a dude, you know, under D'Amico Ryan's led football team, under – a Bobby Slowick coordinated offense, um, whatever the case may be. So there's there are always some diamonds in the rough. But again, I'll say, yeah, as far off as they are, they have a lot of money and a lot of draft capital to help them get back to even the playing field, I think, a lot more quickly than people anticipate. Yeah, the quarterback thing, we talked about it before. It's a, it's a big jump that the Texans are going to have to make because they're going to most likely going to be starting from scratch. And those two guys are really, really good. And Patrick Mahomes is already getting goat comparisons this early in his career. And I know, yeah, he's got a long way to go to catch Tom Brady and Joe he's Montana. On trajectory. He's on that trajectory. Yeah. And you know what? To me, the it was a one, it was a heck of a Super Bowl. I mean, we've seen some terrific come comebacks in Super Bowl history, just even in the last decade, right? Um, probably the most memorable is when Brady was with the Patriots and they overcame 28 to three, the deficit to, to the Falcons a few years ago. Uh, but some great, that was one of the better Super Bowl games, like just matching tit for tat, seeing those offenses just go bam, bam, bam. But for Jalen Hurts to do that, I, I think as much as Pat Mahomes and Jason Kelsey were barking at, you know, the media after the Super Bowl victory saying nobody gave us a chance. And I know all those Fox dorks, you know, picked the Eagles to win, you know, the game the other day, but I feel like Jalen hurts himself individually silenced a lot of critics for the way that he played the game the other night. Wasn't his fault. I can tell you that. Well, you know, I mean, he, had, he had the fumble. He had the fumble. I mean, that was like the one blemish. And unfortunately, you know, for him and the Eagles, it turned out to be a very big, you know, blemish a mistake because if that if that ball is not returned for a touchdown if they hold Kansas City to a field goal I mean I think it's a little bit different of a football game at that point but it was really the play before you know the false start on that Eagles offensive lineman that really kind of screwed the pooch for him and that even set that up yeah no you're right he that obviously the touchdown was the difference in the ball game and sure Jalen Hurts uh you know he he did you know the fumble was all him I mean or nobody not even touched but I'm saying that, I guess, because he put 35 points on the board. And when you put 35 points on the board in the Super Bowl, you you would think you would win the game. And, you know, also, I got to say, got a lot of people out there yelling and screaming about that pass interference or holding call late in the game. And I, I just have to say, look, I've watched 17 games worth of Texans. They were calling that holding penalty. It was a point of emphasis all year long. To me, it was a, the call was legit. The guy that got called for it, basically said, 
hey, I did it. Um, look, look, if you're mad that that call was made at that point in the game, all I can tell you is I, I don't I don't like rooting for sports with you in the room then because I hate that whole idea of we're going to change the way how we ref the games. We've seen it with the Rockets recently. We're going to change the way how we ref the games in the final few seconds of a game compared to the rest of the game. And I, I just hate that, Sean. I, I don't agree with that. It, no, it's, it's, a, it's a bad argument, and I, I'm with you there. You know, I let's see how I come out on this because I've talked about that situation probably a handful of times, and I've come out maybe on, on, on different sides each conversation that I've had. But, um, you know, earlier today I'm talking to, to Greg Bailey, of uh, ABC 13. And I'm like, <laughs> I get out of the car. And it's the first thing that he mentioned to me is like, man, you know, that play. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not the point in the game that bothers me. The, the, the part that bothers me is that, okay, if you let all of the players, you know, really duke it out for 59 minutes, but then you're going to call that kind of thing in that situation Forget the situation, but you're just going to call that as a whole. Like, ah, to me, the optics it looked a lot worse, you know, on replay than what actually had happened. You go watch that play. I'm sure you have numerous times. You know, it was a double move. But upon him making that second move to go up the field into the end zone, Juju Smith-Schuster, Bradbury, his arm is on the back of Juju Smith-Schuster, but there's no cloth. He didn't grab. He grabbed the first time when he faked in to go out. And but so that's, that's the call they were calling all year, that holding call, that initial hold. And that's that's an automatic first down. Yeah, I get it. You know, I get it. it but, you if, know, he, I, if he doesn't grab him, you know, is Patrick Mahomes throwing it 10 yards over? I mean, Patrick Mahomes usually is not like an inaccurate quarterback. Hello. He's really good. As, as much as you could say, like, all right, I don't like that call at that point in time. Bradbury. I appreciated his honesty after the game. There was probably is probably a different reason for him doing it than literally admitting to it. But I like it nonetheless because if you can say, "All right, I don't like that." Yeah, it's a hole, but I don't like it at that point in the game because of the way where they were letting him play. Bradbury has to probably have the same mentality. Like, okay, I I know they I know how they were letting us play, but at that point in the game, I can't do that. I just have to. It's best on best. I mean, I got to play it as straight up as possible. This is a big situation. And he didn't do it. And he owned up to it. Even if they're letting him play like that, they play a certain way during the game, it's always more obvious when you're the guy they're throwing the ball to. And the refs are, are zeroed in on that. Let me also point out to all, all those Eagles fans that are like, oh, that was terrible. You know what? It was also a bad call. Dallas Goddard did not make that. He was bobbling it. He never had full control. While he had that second foot down. Well, they reviewed that. They reviewed that. And they, they and, and they were wrong in there. And, and I mean, well, I watched it. They were wrong. I can't say definitively, man. I mean, sure, he bobbled it. But I think it was Greg Olson, you know, at the time, who was the analyst in the game with Kevin Burkhart, said, yeah, he bobbled it. But did he have his right toe on the turf when he regained control of that still? It was so close. And the NFL, they reviewed that, and they were just unable to determine exactly that point if his toe had picked up by the time that he regained control of the football. And in those situations, we know we see it every single week, multiple times in the league. If it's not irrefutable evidence, the call's not going to be overturned. And so – but your point stands. I mean, it was so close. Maybe it wasn't a catch, but the fact that it was, you know, I still think there was three other plays in the game because literally this game, you can absolutely say it came down to a handful of plays. We like to say that for every football game, and we try to use that as, a, as, as an argument for a lot of the Texan games, especially this season that we saw for so many of the games, Robert, that they were in that they really weren't. But it literally came down to three to four or five plays in that Super Bowl game, which is you know, one of the reasons it was one of the better Super Bowls in recent memory. I got to say, my heart was a little bit with the Chiefs in this game. I have the my Chiefs uh, hat with me here. Uh, I love the hat as much as, you know, it's an old school 80s thing. Uh, that's a big part of it. Not, not that I'm the biggest Chiefs fan, but while my heart was a little bit leaning towards the Chiefs was because uh, despite Jalen Hurts, you know, who I covered 
and I shot a few of his games while he was at Channel View. So I had I had no major animosity towards Philly because of Jalen Hurts, because you know I like Jalen Hurts a lot, great guy. But keep in mind, I spent half my college experience at Missouri Southern State University. I spent my entire college experience in Missouri, and okay, so the first half was at Missouri State. While I was there, I called the games on television, and then I transferred to Missouri and covered the Tigers, as many of the longtime listeners know. And by the way, neither school gets to go to championship games or experience much ecstasy. So it was kind of cool to see Missouri Southern's Brandon Williams. Okay, there's never a Missouri Southern guy in these type of games, or next to never. (laughs) And then Mizzou had Nick Bolton. And both of those guys, they pick up a yeah. ring. And how about Bolton with a defensive touchdown, nine tackles? He crushed it. And, Sean, you could throw all of that as well into the the equation and throw in the fact that the first NFL game I ever covered as a sports guy, as a kid, was at Arrowhead Stadium. So KC oh, wow. means a little bit. Yeah, well, that's awesome. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I saw on Twitter uh, during and after the game especially that – People preface the tweet with, ah, I didn't really have a, I had no dog in the fight. It means you liked both guys. You liked both teams, you know, or something about both teams. And, um, I mean, who doesn't love Andy Reid? All right, maybe former Eagle fan, you know, or Eagle fans, uh, him as a former coach of theirs. But, I mean, Patrick Mahomes, somebody was complaining to me uh, via text the other night after the game about Mahomes and his mouthpiece. And I was like, dude, I'll take Mahomes uh, or his tongue. I'll take Mahomes' tongue over Seth Curry's mouthpiece any day of the week, you know. <laughs> like, that stuff doesn't bother me. But, you know, my wife uh, taught Jalen Hurts Texas history once upon a time ago when he was just a middle school student in Channel View. And she remembered, you know, just boasting about him to other teachers and his coaches that he would always – it was literally – he was the kid that showed up first and was the last to leave, always wanting to stay late and work on something. And so um, he's carried that mindset, which, uh, you know, people around here, especially in Channel View, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. His dad, the way his parents brought him up, has everything to do with how he was raised. And if you're going to do something, you're going to do it diligently, and you're going to see it all the way through. And that's even still just not good enough. You've got to put in the time to be great. And that's exactly what Jalen Hurts has done. And it's going to make him one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the entire NFL one day. Not to mention the fact, besides all of those connections that I have with the Chiefs, how about the Texans getting a Super Bowl championship with Justin Reed? And just a great guy too, Justin Reed, a really stand-up human being. And and so that was cool. Yeah, he's a cool dude. You know, I was... uh can't say that I was happy for him, but I wasn't not happy for him. It's kind of like ancient history. Um, we've, we reached a point in Texan history where it got so bad that I didn't really miss the guys that weren't here anymore. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Um, I, I guess maybe a part of me wishes we could go back four years ago where none of this ever happened <laughs> you know, no no Watson drama you know no Jack Easterby no Bill O'Brien losing his mind and going on this power trip and being terrible at his job um so in that respect yeah you know, good for Justin Reed you say ancient history but he was just here last year <laughs> this is his first year with the Chiefs yeah it seems like forever ago I mean a year as a Houston Texan fan and certainly as somebody that covered them every single day the last year it felt like uh four years ago (laughs) Uh, one last thing on my missouri tigers uh not sure if you caught this sean but missouri oh great weekend for us their fight for attorney spot down by two to sixth ranked tennessee and then deandre golston runs up the court with four seconds left and launches a 25-footer on the run at the buzzer this was golston's second game-winning three-point buzzer meter on the road this season, just like a ridiculous shot in that game. And then the previous game that he did it was against Central Florida. Banks won off the glass. Uh, it was it was a big one for us. Big one. Hashtag college basketball, man. It's it's kind of that time of year where you start to see, you know, uh, some minor miracles happening. I can't wait for March Madness. You know, I was uh, down at uh, Fertitta Center. Uh, talking with, uh, you know, Jairus Walker, Jamal Shedd, uh, and Marcus Sasser. And 
I asked, I think it was me. I know I asked one of the guys, but uh, just about big moments and, you know, dreaming of making the big shot. And all three of those guys, it gets me so pumped for March Madness to come around, man. I mean, this is a team that's been in that position, but they all crave that big moment. They all, and maybe nobody more than Jairus Walker. Jairus Walker, you know, this freshman is, you know, being talked about as a lottery pick for a reason. The guy's an absolute stud. He's hungry for that moment. He wants the ball in that moment. He hopes there are moments in which his number is going to be called to take that final shot. And so um, it's that time of year, man. I'm getting pumped up for it. So uh, kudos to your uh, uh, to your Missouri team, and uh, hopefully they don't run into a buzzsaw uh, named the Houston Cougars down the road. Speaking of the Cougars, we did a show with our Coug uh, buddy over there at uh, the Scott Holman podcast. Go check it out. If you didn't, we did the show with him last week but also speaking of the cougars did you ask jarris walker like what in the world's going on you guys are number two number one loses you guys get jumped get jumped by another team after crushing a team by 40 this week in your only game yeah it is also the worst team in their league you know they crushed by 40 they were supposed to do that and i think this break um, that they're on right now, the longest of the season. They're not going to have played a game in seven or eight days. They're not in action again until SMU, another dud within the conference. Um, they've got Memphis twice left on the schedule. Um, that question did not come up today um, in that fashion, in that fashion. But I would, I would venture a guess that if U of H finishes the season like they think they should, that means two quality wins over the Memphis Tigers before season's end. It would not shock me if they, again, for the third time this season, reclaim that number one spot. Well, they need the number one seed. They're number one right now. That These Memphis games, like you said, are biggies. Uh, let's, let's close with uh, some more positive, though, because the Texans, not only did they have a good Super Bowl Sunday, what a bad weekend for the Astros either. New GM Dana Brown starts off his Astros career with a massive splash on, he signs Christian Javier, a five-year, $64 million contract, which means two extra years of Javier past arbitration on the cheap. This is like a Walmart special up for Christian Javier. Hashtag Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve. Uh, who else? <laughs> who else of the Astros? Obviously with a different GM. But have they gotten just absolute fantastic deals with uh, Jordan Alvarez? <laughs> How's that looking? I mean, it looks phenomenal. I mean, the future is so, so bright. And the fact that you can actually say that with in the same breath as you criticize the farm system for being severely depleted. I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm not criticizing. Nobody should criticize the farm you. system. I'm not talking about you. I'm just, that's what people say. I mean, the farm well, system is the you, Yeah, criticize it as we're going to the freaking LCS and playoffs every year. Exactly. And the, and, and the farm system just keeps, you know, we keep birthing Jeremy Pena World Series MVPs and Christian Javier's and Fran Bervault. I mean, all, all we do is our guys just keep coming up and doing stuff. I mean, that's my point. That's my point. You know, criticize all you want in the same breath. How do you do that? You know, and then you're getting these great deals on the players that you've developed within this depleted farm system that didn't, you know, venture a second look by most people around baseball. But you've brought them along and you've helped turn them into absolute stars. I mean, how many teams would Christian Javier be, you know, a one or a two on going into the 2023 season? Hell, during the 2022 season, it, it's just it's it's tremendous. And so I'm, I'm super pumped up. I love what I'm hearing from Dana Brown. I I really thought just this guy's resume, I mean, because obviously I don't know him from a hill of beans, but his resume spoke loud and clear to me. And just seeing the job that the Atlanta Braves have done in the National League, now he's here with the world champion Astros and talking like, hey, we need to start locking these guys up long term because that's just not what everybody else does, but it's just smart business. Look at all the guys that have left over the course of the last five, six seasons that very well could and maybe should still be Houston Astros, marquee guys locked up on these deals. I'd be interested to see who he's talking about specifically here in the next coming weeks, months, and years. All right. The MLB uh, was other news that they announced the extra inning rule with the runner on second is now permanent for regular season games. And apparently I am the only person in all of baseball Twitter that thinks this rule 
is great for the regular season like they have it. I hate that games go on forever and extra innings. As a fan, as somebody that gets bored after like, I don't know, four hours of baseball, there was nothing fun about the 18-inning Mariners playoff game to me. That was not fun, Sean. That was torture, and it was too long. I completely disagree with you on the last point. I mean, you were talking regular season, but then you're talking about one of the best playoff games that I remember seeing in my life. What was great about it? There was literally nothing happened for nine innings except striking guys out. What's what's so exciting? It was fantastic pitching. It was really good defensive plays. Like, it was just the one of the hardest things. You know, we talk about in football, right? Okay. The, hard, the, the hardest position to play in football is what? Quarterback. Okay, well, you know, the the position that you get paid the most, you know, on the opposite side is to go get the quarterback, you know, your defensive end. Like one of the hardest things to do in baseball is to hit a freaking baseball. When you have a dude up there on the mound in a playoff game during an 18 inning affair or nine inning affair, it's just fantastic pitching. Runs are hard to come by. The hardest thing to do is to continue to just dominate and throw strikes and keep your game in it for as long as it possibly can until your offense comes through. I mean, it was one of the best games. The Ghost Runner thing, I just can never get behind. I get the reason in people's you know argument, like, well, we don't need to see 18 inning games during the regular season, which hey, is Sean, already 100. Sean, who is who's up for the for the Mariners games and the A's games and the Angels games at 12 o'clock to begin with? Now you want me? No, 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 they're asleep. Because they got jobs the next day, unlike you and me. They got real jobs. But that's the best part about baseball. It's That's why I love that, it, that it's 162. It can- no, the, no, the best part about baseball is not four-hour games. That is not what's great about it. That, that's, that's and what- by the way, your son will never, ever see the end of a baseball game in the playoffs unless you want to keep him up till midnight for World Series games. Well, good parents do that. <laughs> You know, good parents want to spend that those moments with their kids. It may not be best for you. It's best for me. I love baseball. I want to see as much of it as possible. Um, that's what makes the sport great. The amount of games in a season, that in itself is a marathon. But the prospect that an actual game could go on forever, that's, the in, that's part of the intrigue for me. I mean, I, I love it. And I don't like playing fake baseball putting some schmuck at second base that has no business being there because he didn't earn his way on the base. Do you like fake NFL overtimes? Because that's not decided on a real thing. If it was, then they would just keep going and going and going and going and going until, you know, with each period, as if it's still time, we just keep going and going and going and going. Let's keep doing it. Let's make it six hours for an NFL game. Well, just win the game. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, win the game. Yeah, but, you know, you're you're acting like though guys just don't get tired after a certain time. And that's what's going on. That's what happens a lot of times in these baseball games. Guys are just exhausted at some point, oh, you know. Poor babies. It's a game. <laughs> you know, that's that's called, you know, an advantage. Like one team's going to get a little bit more tired than the other. Thus, advantage swings. Thus, you're probably going to win the game if you're not as tired as those poor little babies over there. I mean, your argument too. Are you baby shaming people now? Is that what you're doing? I am. I I mean, that, that is all the babies that are watching us right now have been insulted. Thank you so much for that. Good. I mean, I I just, I hate, I hate that excuse. Like, Oh, people aren't watching. It's too long. Get out of here. Like I'm not, I I never am saying in the playoffs, but in the regular season, there's 162 games. It's too long of a season. Baseball. Baseball. You know what was baseball like like 60 years ago? Let's go to traditional baseball. Let's keep out black people. Let's take away the lights. Let's, uh, you know. Wow. We, <laughs> so extreme. That, that's traditional baseball. That's what baseball was the whole time. Look, things change. Attention spans change. People have lives. You know, they have a lot more to do these days. If you want to play fake baseball, go ahead and use one of those balls they use in a home run derby. Use it in the 10th inning. Paint it gold. And let's have home run derby. You know, let's do some crap like that. I mean, if you want to watch more, you know, fake baseball, I, I'm just, I'll never get down with it. You know, you want to talk 60 years ago, let's yeah, go. Well, hey, old man. Hey, old man. Let's go back to watching pitchers hit. Let's watch the Astros pitchers hit. Cause it's a lot more fun to watch the Astros pitchers hit than watch Jordan Alvarez smash the ball 600. Did you like Jordan Alvarez smashing the ball 600 feet 
in, 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 in this year? Did you enjoy that? I baptized that? myself just fine without that argument, Robert. I've come around, and I like the DH. The American League oh, had it right back well, in Well, sometimes 70s. change is good, Sean, and this, this is one of those times. No, this change is stupid, and it's fake. It's fraudulent. I hate it. I'll never like it. Um, I'll accept it just so long as they don't use this crap. I mean, there's a reason if it was so great, they would use it in postseason play. And if they ever do that, then I'm going to have a real big issue with it. Um, it actually fooled me this year, probably in the 18 inning game. I think that was the first uh, extra inning game that I watched in person, Astros and Mariners. I look up and I'm like, hey, where's the guy on second? Oh, yeah, they're not doing it. Oh, good. They're not going to stink this one up. Like, play fake baseball. No, it's baseball. Play real baseball. You want to go back 70 years ago? 70 years ago, my grandfather was playing, and they played their asses off to try and get through games in two hours or less just so they could make the train to get to the other city. This is literally the complete opposite. <laughs> now, instead of you trying hard to get out of there and win a ball game so you can make a trip, let's just help you out and put a fake base runner on second and then hope you – hit some dribbler up the middle and score the guy. Now get out of here. I don't need it. All right. They also announced position players can only pitch in three circumstances. Now this is the integrity of keeping guys maybe healthy a little bit from these position play, maybe integrity of the game, but keeping guys healthy. I think more, they can only do it when they're leading the leading team. I should say is up by 10 or more runs in the ninth inning. When the trailing team is down by eight or more runs, Anytime or when the game goes extra innings. I, I don't see anybody having an issue with this particular rule. No, I'm totally fine with that one. I mean, you just threw a lot of numbers at me. And I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of zoned out a little bit, but I, I don't need to see, I don't need to see position players pitching. It is kind of fun. Um, Brett Phillips probably leads all position players for a number of pitches thrown over the course of the last five years. And I don't really need to ever see him take a mound again. <laughs> so I'm good with that. Oh, yeah. I think I, I don't need to see the Tyler Whites of the I'm trying to remember who all the Astros have had recently out there. But uh, a big story that sort of got swept under the rug by everybody outside Houston was Evan, in Evan Drellick's book, the Dodgers were cheating in the 2018 postseason, according to a Red Sox player. I'm shocked. I'm just I'm stunned. I'm stunned here. You know, people around here probably tune out because any little excerpt that comes from Evan Drellick, it's probably going to implicate the Astros into something and or just be redundant or just another thorn in the side of Astro fans. Um, but it does kind of intrigue me as to maybe what else is in that book. You and I talked about this the other day. Like, what else are we going to learn? Um, the vagueness of this, you know, accusation against the Dodgers, that's – basically was the impetus for the Houston Astros cheating scandal. You know, it was like, okay, well, Danny Farquhar, you know, said this, they had to corroborate it with an Astro. And then here comes Mike Fires, you know, to do just that um, because he didn't feel like it was right. And people's futures were being affected. So let me just talk about the Astros. I'm sure Mike Fires, if he had to answer those same questions all over again, probably had a little bit of knowledge about some other teams as well. So I'd be interested in knowing that. Or if he's just decided to shut the hell up finally, um, you know, after, you know, three or four years of the story coming out. But, you know, it's it is a big deal. It should be a big deal because not just for us being here in Houston and having to live through and listen to all of the vitriol and the finger pointing and all of that with the Astros. But it's a Major League Baseball problem. And it points to what I thought was going on all along. Major League Baseball knew that ball clubs were doing this via technology. The Astros did it better than everybody else. They maybe took it to a next level, and they got caught because of a, a, a guy that spilled the beans, Mike Fires, Danny Farquhar. Well, there's plenty of other guys that knew damn well the L.A. Dodgers were cheating in this fashion. And so I think this is just the beginning of the story with the L.A. Dodgers. I don't think this is going to go away. I don't think anybody cares because it's not convenient for the national media for it to be a problem for everybody. So I, I, I don't think it goes anywhere. And we've seen it over and over again. There's been one person, one player after another has come out and says, everybody was doing it. We think the Dodgers were doing it. We think the Yankees, the Red Sox, the evidence showed that they were doing it. Carlos Beltran and, and it was stated in the ultimate guide of how we're going to get the Astros 
uh, he said, uh, you gotta, you guys gotta do this. You know, me and Alex Cora know that everybody's doing it yeah, uh, yeah. And, and we're not doing it. So, you know, magically, uh, they somehow figured out that everybody was doing it, you know, and we just keep saying that and, it, and it's right there in black and white. And, it, and we, we, I don't know. I just, I'm tired of talking about it because I know what's going to happen. Nobody's going to care because they want it to be the Astros problem from a national perspective. And, they, and, and baseball, other baseball players, you know, they're like, this is great. We can just pin everything on the Astros. We get away with it. And everything that everything else is against the Astros. And yeah. it's like, yeah, the, the Red Sox World Series is Ill- exactly. illegitimate. The Dodgers World Series a couple of years ago. Who knows? That might be illegitimate. We might find that out, too. I mean, don't know, but it, it, it's it's looking like all, all of these guys were in on it. The Yankees. I mean, we we know some of their uh, World Series championships back in <laughs> 15 years ago, 20 years ago were illegitimate. I mean, it's just like, yeah, we we, we know the story. We know it. It's not it's not going anywhere. I, I I I don't think it's going anywhere. I I, I think there's just going to be more people to come out over time and and speak about it. Just like this anonymous ball player, whoever it was, former uh, who they say former Red Sox player. I mean, I went back in 2018 and compared the 18 roster to the 2022 roster. There was only three players that existed from the 18 team to the 22 team, and I was trying to figure out, like, man, who spilled the beans. You know, only three players off a 40-man roster still existed. So there was a lot of players that I was going to sift through. And it's just, it's almost an impossible feat. But for the point that you just said, everybody wants to make it about the Astros. Sure, until they play for the Astros and they get tired of answering those questions and hearing those heckles. I think over time, whether it be months or the next couple of three years, more guys will come out, maybe maybe anonymously. But I think there's there's more to paint in terms of what this this very abstract picture is uh at least around the Houston Astros. We we see the Astros image very clear. That Dodger image is starting to come through. The Red Sox, the Yankees, how many other teams? Didn't just have to be the teams that were you know there at the end of the season they were doing maybe the most cheating. Maybe teams just sucked at it, but they were doing it themselves too. Before we close the show out, I got to mention one thing that I forgot to mention. We were talking about Matt Burke. In the next 24 hours, I am hoping, I am planning. uh, It looks like it's going to happen. I'm going to have somebody who covers the Dolphins to talk a little bit about Matt Burke. I want to find out about our new defensive coordinator. So keep an eye out for that. It's supposed to happen. Uh, Haven't nailed it down totally, but it looks like it's going to happen. But uh, looking forward to doing this again on Thursday, Sean. Let's do it. Always, man. Always have fun talking with you, man. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.